0: The reason we are approaching electrification of our athletic center is that I need to replace a boiler plant in the next three years. So if I'm going to replace the boiler plant and the heating load is a huge carbon consumer in that building, and that building is a huge energy hog, then I should look holistically at the building and think about, do I really need to put another 3 million BTUs of natural gas in here?
1: Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decision's own Deborah Channel. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, Deborah digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in.
2: Welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. I'm your host, Deborah Channel. Today we are continuing our Heard at NZF series on Smart Energy Voices. Heard at NZF is a mini series of live interviews that we did with our energy customers at various stages of their decarbonization strategies. And this all took place at our recent net zero forum. In this episode, we are sharing multiple interviews with energy customers in higher ed. Today you'll be hearing from Dr. Wolfgang Bauer, distinguished professor at Michigan State University. Jason Mironde, Head of Energy and Special Projects at Bard College at Simons Rock, and Lindsay Rowell, Chief of Energy, Sustainability, and Transportation at California State University's Office of the Chancellor. Let's begin with Wolfgang Bauer. Wolfgang is a repeat guest on our podcast, Smart Energy Voices, and he always brings fresh insights into this ever-changing field. So we're very happy to welcome him back and catch up. And by the way, he's on our advisory board. So Triple welcome to you, Wolfgang. Thanks, Deborah. Thanks for being here. So give us a brief overview of Michigan State University and your role there.
3: Yeah, so this is my first interview as a civilian. I was in executive management last time we talked with each other. And then uh, two years ago, I switched over to my regular faculty role again. And uh, I do fun things like teach interactory physics. And we have a fairly large grant from the Army To build an electric vehicle for them. So that's my current research. I was in charge or partially in charge of mobility issues at Michigan State. And so this seems like a natural continuation of at least that effort. As far as Michigan State is concerned, as you know, we started our energy transition plan now 11 years ago in 2012. It was approved by our board with the eventual goal of being like everybody wants to be carbon neutral and. 100% 100% renewable energy, and this has actually turned out to be, I would say, much harder than many of us envisioned.
2: So when you say it's harder than expected, what were some of the challenges of roadblocks that you hit?
3: Yeah, so when you think about what's the energy that you consume, what's the waste stream that you produce, first you would say, oh, it's electricity, right? And especially, for example, in California, everything goes towards electrification, even home heating. If you're in a colder climate, that's much harder. So two-thirds of our energy dollars that we spent, we spent on heating the buildings. We have our own microgrid since 1894. So we have been a microgrid community before it was fashionable, 100 years before it was fashionable. And we have actually retained this right to make our own electricity. And in 1964, also long before it was fashionable, we built the first Cogen power plant. It's a roughly 100 megawatt installation. We produce 900 psi steam, run it over steam turbines, and then send 90 psi steam everywhere on campus to heat our buildings. So on paper, this is a very efficient operation. But it turns out that through the years, partially through more need for electricity and partially also through better building installation, the balance between steam needs and electricity needs has been disturbed more and more. And so now we're in a point where we don't use a significant fraction of the steam because we need the electricity, and so we just send it up cooling towers. And what we find is that two-thirds of our dollars that we spend on gas purchases to run our power plant goes into home e- I mean building heating, and so we try to make incremental steps to put the power plant back in balance. And so our newest project is actually not a renewable energy project, but it's a conventional power plant of uh, the newest generation. And so what I mean by that is we have unmarried our steam and electricity production. And instead, we have some very high-efficiency recip gas engines. So they've worked basically like giant truck engines, but each of them produces 10 megawatt and they have very good ramp rates. So they they can produce low amount of electricity and high amount of electricity. And the switchover time is very short between them on the order of a few seconds or minutes. And so we can balance our electricity and steam much better between the two extremes. And what, what it has enabled us is to integrate solar. So the 11 megawatt solar carport that I talked before is integrated and the intermittency can be balanced in our microgrid through this rapidly changing electricity supply from this gas-fired power plant.
2: I want to follow up on what you said about the microgrid. It started in 1894. What did a microgrid look like in 1894? Not that you were there, by the way, don't mean to imply that, but...
3: Just slightly before I started, yeah. So let me rewind to 1855 when our university was founded. And so what they did first was, oh, you know, we need to heat the buildings. And so they had individual fireplaces in the buildings. It was all wood fired. And then we built a railroad connection. And so we could switch to coal firing. And by the way, that only stopped in 2017 when we completely terminated coal firing and went all to natural gas. Which, by the way, saves half the emissions if you do that simple switch from coal to gas. And then the microgrid itself wasn't what it is now. It was just individual physics and engineering professors experimenting with this newfangled stuff called electricity. And lo and behold, we could make some light bulbs work. But we retained the ability and the right to make electricity on our campus, and we did never give that up. So all around us, it's a regulated state. There is a monopoly. Consumer powers and Detroit Edison have nicely split up the state and consumer powers is all around us. But on our campus, we have the right to make our own electricity. And that is both useful for money saving and also for resiliency. There was this big blackout all over the northeast of the country a good 20 years ago or so. And one of the very, very few places that were not in the dark was Michigan State University's campus. In the 35 years that I've been at Michigan State, we had zero seconds of blackout on our campus.
2: And given that you have such a big, you've got research going on, you've got a lot, never mind, you know, the students being there, first of all, and keeping the buildings going, but you've got research and other things going on where you can't lose power. So that's a big advantage. Do any other universities have that or is this particular to MSU? that you know of?
3: I mean, we're in the vast minority. Most universities purchase at least their electricity, and then they will have a, either local in each building heating mechanisms or central heating over, over campus. Very few have their own microgrid.
2: Okay. I want to tell you, Again, being a university, there are some pros and cons in terms of energy and sustainability. You know, you're not going anywhere. You've been there. It's 100 years. How old is the university? You said 18?
3: 1855,
2: so 170 years. Right. So you take the long view on projects. So that's certainly an advantage. What are some of the other advantages and what are some of the challenges in operating as a university?
3: Yeah, so I would say the advantages are definitely continuity. We've been there for a long time and we know we will be there for a long time, even though with the rise of AI, you know, this also may uh, deserve a little bit of rethinking. But basically, university will always be a place where... Young people meet their life partner, I would say, even if they don't learn that much in academia on campus, at least they meet somebody that they can get married to. And there's football, you know?
2: Oh, well, there's always football on MSU, that I know.
3: So continuity is a big advantage. So when we went out for power purchase agreements, we were able to sign a 30-year agreement without a problem, whereas most commercial entities have a real problem with 30-year agreements. If you just look 30 years back, there was no Amazon, there was no Google, right? And so the biggest players in the world 30 years ago didn't exist, and chances are some of those big players in the world will not exist. Remember, AOL was the biggest company in the world, and now it's basically vanished. Yahoo basically vanished. And I could go along this. So that's an advantage of these universities. And, you know, in the U.S., universities are 150, 200, 250 years old. In Europe, the place where I got my Ph.D. is a 1,000 years old. We're babies. Yes, in that sense. So that's an advantage. Disadvantage is, and this may sound strange, we don't pay taxes. So we cannot take advantage of investment tax credits and other incentives, for example, that are built into now the Inflation Reduction Act. And... So we have to be very judicious and have to look for partners to make renewable energy projects pencil out.
2: Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what's the funding picture like for projects when something comes up, when the microgrid needs something new or there's a good technology out there that you want to implement?
3: So we have a steady funding stream anyway that has to be built in just to maintain the power plant. Like any power plant operator in the country, you have to plan for continuous update of the equipment, maintenance, you have to plan for the personnel. And since you know you will have to face continual capital expenses, you put some rainy day fund in that can accumulate, and then you make the right purchase when the time comes. That may be an advantage in some cases. In other cases, it's not because we're also, when we're set on a track, it's really, really hard to move us. It's sort of like trying to turn an aircraft carrier around. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of time.
2: Interesting point. I hadn't thought of that part of it. All right. So thinking about the state of clean energy outside of the university or inside, give us the last statement. What do you see as the biggest challenge going forward and what's the biggest opportunity?
3: Yeah, so this actually clearly depends on where you are in the country or in the world. So here in Phoenix, totally different weather profile than where I live in Michigan. So in Michigan, the winters, they have actually become measurably warmer, but there's still snow on the ground and we still have to heat the buildings. And as I said earlier, two-thirds of our energy dollars flow into that process. So what I'm really looking for is a partner that can deliver medium-depth geothermal arrays where we can use heat pumps and basically suck the heat out of the ground and heat our buildings in the winter and, you know, a couple hundred feet down, the temperature is always 55 degrees. So when you thermalize against that, you can also use that same water to cool the buildings in the summer. And that is great energy savings, as we all know from heat pumps. You know, they have efficiencies and my physics colleagues should not listen into this, but their efficiencies are effectively greater than 100 percent, 200, 250 percent.
2: Right. So I think we have now the subject of the fourth podcast, when you get geothermal up and running, <laughs> we will have you back again. But Dr. Wolfgang Bauer, thank you so much for being with us today. I always appreciate your viewpoint, your expertise. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Deborah. And now let's hear from Jason Morande. Jason, welcome. Welcome. Jay or Jason, I've been given permission to use both. Sorry about that. Tell us about Bard College at Simons Rock and your role there.
0: Well, Bard College at Simon's Rock is the only residential, the world's only residential early college, and that means that a majority of our college freshmen have completed tenth grade in high school and dropped out. They will never receive a high school diploma, but they will receive a bachelor's from Bard College two years before their peer set. I like to say that we have a whole college campus full of Doogie Howser and all the ups and downs that that comes with. My role there began many years ago as the energy manager, and it sort of became clear that all of the biggest projects would be energy projects. And so then I became the projects manager, and now I handle a lot of all of the projects and capital projects and energy projects all included.
2: So you sort of segued into a role that you probably didn't think you'd have when you took the job. Correct. Interesting. Interesting. But you seem very enthusiastic about it, so that's all good. All right, let's start with a quick word association. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase net zero? Carbon. Carbon is a hot topic for sure, at this event and in the industry. Carbon offsets, carbon credits, good projects, bad projects. So a lot to be said about that. But for now, I want to go into what are Bard College's sustainability goals?
0: Bard College wants to be as green as possible, as many ways as possible. We've recently worked out a huge composting program on campus, and we're now composting a ton of stuff. But that's just one angle of the work that I work on, to be buying clean energy supply now, and working towards clean energy, microgrids, and things like that later are a big part of our strategy long term. And then once we can control our own electricity, in a lot of ways, electrification becomes easier if you're generating and storing and dispatching on-site utility resources.
2: So where would you say you are on this journey to reach the goals? It sounds like you certainly have your plans moving forward.
0: We're early in the journey. In as much as we have lofty goals, we uh, are just starting to take baby steps towards actually doing it. We're working on our first building electrification project since last winter, and uh, it'll probably be longer than next winter before we actually start building. But that's just the timeline for construction nowadays.
2: Right. You have to take a long view on some of this for sure.
0: I think a big part of the journey for everybody is, as you look at those building renovations now that just have to be done, you have to look at it with a net zero aspect in mind, even though it might not come true totally for 10 more years, if you don't start now, you're not being proactive.
2: For sure. So what's the biggest challenge so far And to end with these baby
0: steps? Money. <laughs> what a surprise. Everybody says money, and it's sort of the fun joke to say money. I don't think it's really, money is in a way it, because all of the solutions cost money. But finding solutions that justify the money is really the question. Because I can sell almost anything if it works, but it's got to work. You know, I'm a private college. I don't necessarily always take the lowest bid. There might be complementary factors with a bid where we might have a vendor that's willing to teach a whole class or teach two semesters of classes about the project that they're doing to integrate the, the education into the actual facilities project. And those projects have a greater value to us. And if they cost it a little bit more money, it might be worth it to the board and to the you know administration to just go for it. And I've seen them make choices like that before for the greater good.
2: Wow. So that leads right into my next question, which is basically, you know, is there cooperation at the highest levels, the board, all of that? And then we'll talk about the students. But first talk about, you know, you've are you struggling to prove a business case or are they really, are they on boards?
0: The board is on board. I think they are, some of the people on my board in particular are very smart about energy issues. And so you're not, make sure you got your numbers right before you go talk to them. But when the numbers are right, they're on board. They, I think, understand, I think, and like a lot of boards should, that this is coming down the road at you, whether you like it or not, and you're not going to get around it. So you can spend the money slowly now, or you can get caught in 10 years with a you know quarter of a billion dollars problem on your hands, and that's for a relatively small institution.
2: Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the students a little bit. I like what you said about, you know, potentially having projects where they're involved and they can learn from it. What's their level of interest in sustainability and energy programs?
0: I lecture probably three to four times every semester. I teach a class during our January term that is generally pretty oversubscribed. And at any given point, our facilities department has between one and four interns and then another one in four facilities, employees, students. And it's sort of a different fine line. The interns aren't necessarily assigned to toil as much as the workers, but a lot of people come to see the big generators and to see the tunnels that make it all possible, sort of see what's behind the scenes. But I find that this generation of kids is deeply interested in the world around them and making it better. Mm-hmm.
2: Very good. And I want to go back to a funding question for a minute, because you just, at funding it's a private institution, you don't have to make the case to the wider world or whatever, but what is the funding picture like for a private institution?
0: for a private institution in terms of options available to us. Right. And getting the
2: money, you know, is the money loose enough to get these projects done?
0: The money's not impossible. The money's not impossible at all. Like I said, the trick is, like, the reason we are approaching electrification of our athletic center is that I need to replace a boiler plant in the next three years. So if I'm going to replace the boiler plant and the heating load is a huge carbon consumer in that building, and that building is a huge energy hog, then I should look holistically at the building and think about, do I really need to put another 3 million BTUs of natural gas in here? Has the state of Massachusetts told us they're going to turn off the natural gas? Is it a, <laughs> not a good business case to install an appliance that I know I'm going to rip out, I know is not going to fail, but is no longer going to function when Massachusetts turns off the gas and then build the business case that way?
2: Right. Interest The timeline at institutions is very different at C&I companies because you are taking the long view. Yeah. You can do that. That your company's not going out of business anytime soon.
0: We are building hundred-year buildings and fifty-year buildings. We're not building. This is not a warehouse that's going to be here for fifteen years, and we're going to grow out of it. This is a dorm that needs to stand for a hundred years and is
2: right. You're building things to last. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Not that they're not, but again, a different time frame, a different point of view. Yes. Interesting. So, what's been the biggest surprise for you as you work through all these issues?
0: Surprise? I don't know if so much has surprised me, like. You know what I really liked that I learned from yesterday's thing is the idea of applying a price to carbon and to be able to bring the carbon into the function. And like, I like to work with math. As much as this is all a people-to-people relationship building experience here, like there's some part of math in contracts that just are going to rule the day. And so if you can plug that function of what does your university think carbon is worth? What is a metric ton of carbon worth to us? And like, I personally had this thought of like, maybe I put that to the whole university community. What do we think a metric ton of carbon is worth? And if it's $25, then my projects aren't very much incentivized. But if the student body comes back and says a metric ton of carbon is worth $5,000, then whoa, whoa, I'm not doing enough. And then we believe in community governance. And so the student body, the community body is is asked a lot of things to, to sort of lead ourselves and to think of what would make the group happy. And so the idea of setting a price on carbon and then coupling that with like, what do we think the price on carbon is? What is it really hurting? You're the future of America. We have the future right here with us. What do you guys think it's worse? What are you folks?
2: Right. And they'll be educated on this.
0: Oh, yeah. We have an intense ecology sustainability program. I'd like to show throw a shout out to Cfar, our new Center for Farming and Resiliency, which is a a rebranding of our sustainability efforts and a a larger encompassing. Now we are including the community farm and we're growing food for the community food bank. And we're doing net zero projects down there and a lot of really great things under the CIFAR banner, which is like the other sustainability hat I wear.
2: So even though you said you're kind of early on your journey, you've had a lot of wins already.
0: Uh, We have a lot of wins. I try to make even little wins a win. This is a big win coming here. And this is just a one week of learning, so. Okay,
2: so our final question, thinking about the state of clean energy as the big picture these days, what's the biggest challenge and what's the biggest opportunity?
0: Hydrogen. Hydrogen, I think, is the biggest question. Hydrogen becomes, in a lot of people's thinking, a great swap out for natural gas. And then if you really study it from a chemistry and physics perspective, it's not that cut and dry, it's not that easy. And I guess there's a parting thought. Natural gas burns and hydrogen explodes. And that's uh, the beginning of the kernel of like, oh, this is a bigger picture that we need to think about. It's not quite that easy, but there's a ton of potential.
2: Right. There's a, a, a lot of people are looking at it. Technology is coming up for it's, sure.
0: It's a double-sided sword that, you know, we could solve a lot of problems with this, but there could be a lot of danger. Right.
2: Okay. And before we actually close that out, you're here accepting an award, a DEI Impact Award for Sarah Porter Liddell who couldn't be here because she's just way too busy. Tell us a little bit about Sarah and her work.
0: Sarah is an amazing person. I met Sarah three or four years ago when she came to the college. She is, uh, in the spirit of her award, she is a catalyst for change. She, uh, I've known her for a long time up through the college, and she does not, I don't want to say she doesn't stop fighting because it's never fighting. It's always really pleasant and really figuring out a way to find the best solutions for everybody. I worked with her Really intensely this summer on air conditioner equity. That she did not want people. We are not fully subscribed in the summer. We, you know, we're a rental facility basically, and she didn't want the students that we had left on campus not being air conditioned for some sort of like cost saving measure or something like that. And so, working with her, we, we changed which dorm would be the summer student housing dorm so that they would be air conditioned. And then she and I went about making sure that. The remaining stock of just window unit air conditioners were equally distributed amongst all the faculty and staff that live on campus. So it wasn't like the Dean of Equity and Inclusion, who has now been made our Dean of Student Life, had all the air conditioners and a very kind faculty member down the road had none. Sarah, in real life, was talking to me about this and said, take that air conditioner, take it out of the window. I don't use that room. Go give that to Felix like today. And like means it. She puts herself where her, her thoughts are and she does it.
2: Right. It seems intuitive, something like that. But until you have somebody going in and actually saying, okay, move this, do that, let's look at this, those things don't happen.
0: Well, you think about the institutions of a university. She lives in a house that's set aside for deans and provosts, And she didn't know that there were a protocol that this house is air conditioned and other more temporary rental houses are not. And then she finds that there's a visiting faculty member who's just been sweating it out. She's like, you gotta go help Felix. And I'm like, Felix needs help. Why didn't he tell me? I love Felix. And she's like, you, we gotta we gotta fix this. What's the policy on this? And I was like, Well, those houses might be empty. They don't necessarily get one. And she's like, Well, give him mine right now. Go give him. I can make it through. Like, we can't we gotta spread the love. And she's a great person and really deserving of this award. She I know she received it just a few days after receiving her doctorate. And she is super thrilled. Dr.
2: Sarah Porter-Liddell, she's so and worked so hard for it. We were talking about a little bit. Yeah, that's just, she's quite accomplished. So we are very happy to have her as a winner. We hope to have her at at an event. I really, I love the enthusiasm. I love that you're here and sharing this with all of our attendees. So thank you for your time today and have a great rest of the event. We're looking forward to hearing your impressions of
0: everything. Thanks so much for having me. And finally, let's hear from Lindsay Rowell.
2: One note, you'll hear a different interviewer voice in this conversation. It's our producer, Maria Fayella, who conducted several interviews live at the event.
1: All right, Lindsay, can you tell us about California State
4: University and your role there? Sure. So the California State University is the largest public university system in the country. So we have about half a million students and about a tenth of that in staff and faculty. So it's a really big organization, 23 campuses plus the chancellor's office and a few satellites. So my role there is I am the chief of energy, sustainability and transportation. I know it's a mouthful and we do a lot of stuff. So we do energy and sustainability policy development and we, you know, facilitate implementation on campuses. We do wholesale energy analytics and procurement for the campuses. We do energy code analysis. We do capital planning and project involvement, including master planning for sustainability purposes. And energy efficiency purposes. And then we also do social program development. So DE&I, there are offices on the campuses that support diversity, equity, inclusion. And we help to facilitate that through interpretation of legislation and policy procedures, projects, if that's appropriate. And then we're also the we manage the grant program for the CSU, not for research grants, which faculty are obviously well-practiced in. But we do a lot of work looking for other grants for infrastructure improvement and things like that, things that are typically not grant funded. And then we do energy and sustainability project support. So we do some system-wide program development and procurement vehicles, project management for campuses that need that help. And then oversight of the Mechanical Review Board, which is like a engineering firm or engineering group of professionals that review capital projects and make system-wide recommendations for systems implementation and installation. So we do a lot. That's just starting. And then we're also, obviously, it's in the name, we do strategic planning around alternative transportation, a tr- alternative transportation program, and then actually electric vehicle charging and infrastructure related to that. So we
1: do a lot. You're a busy woman. How large is your team that is executing all of these different things?
4: We have hired I think 3 or 4 people in the last 6 months. So I'm I'm going to say somewhat confidently, I think we're 12 now. Okay, around 12. Okay. Yeah, but I could actually be wrong. And we're actually in the process of bringing on some more student assistance, which that's one of the perks of working for the CSU is getting to hire students who are great innovators. And
1: That's incredible. We've talked a lot with many people in higher ed, and it really sounds like getting the student involvement and getting the students engaged is the
4: special sauce in higher ed of making sustainability work. It is the best. It's the best part. They're so innovative and they're unfettered. You know, they don't have the sort of jaded expectations of bureaucracy, of public service, or just, I mean, not just public service, private service as well. So they really bring a fresh view. And then of course, they're part of our mission. I mean, they are our mission. So getting to hear what's important to them is, having that conduit is really wonderful. Great. A quick word association. So what comes to mind when you hear the phrase net zero? So I thought the holy grail is, that's the first thing. It's the this sort of conceptual, almost unachievable goal that we're all working toward. What really comes to mind when you think of elements of ZNE is that we often forget is the focus on social impacts of carbon and the need for holistic solutions that don't leave more marginalized groups out of the mix, because obviously they're typically the most impacted by climate disaster, you know, pollution, just this, the all the effects of high emissions. So I think... It's important that we keep that in the forefront. It has become sort of maybe a secondary part of sustainability, but really it's one of the three tenets, you know, social, economic and environmental. So when I think ZNE, I try to keep that at the forefront of my mind.
1: And speaking of forefront, what's on the forefront of CSU sustainability goals right now? So there are so many goals. So many departments, so many goals, so many sections, right?
4: <laughs> so sustainability can be touched by every department. And so in 2022, we passed through the board of trustees so our highest governing body to CSU sustainability policy. And within that policy, we captured academics and student life as well as operational. So our 2045 carbon neutrality goal, that's the big one, the 2045 goal. And it's in line with the state of California. But I think we've included curriculum goals and procurement goals. And then, you know, pretty much all elements of the university functionality are included in some way. So the policy is really broad. So to go into all the goals, I won't, obviously. But it's specifically centered around sort of the stars, the HE stars tracking platform. So we touch sort of everything. And yeah, it's a lot to get done.
1: So Lindsay, where would you say you are on the journey to reach these goals? What's the biggest challenge at this point in reaching them? So
4: I think we're really on target. For the most point, as it relates to energy, water, academics. The CSU, as I mentioned, holds these positions within HE stars. I think that's a really good metric and, and sort of speaks to our success. But there are areas where we're struggling with, for sure. And that is the two that kind of come to mind off the top of my head are waste diversion and transportation. Those are areas where we are making the effort, but both areas are beholden to stakeholders over which the CSU has limited control. Individual drivers, waste haulers, they all have to partner and they all have competing missions and focuses. Obviously, the biggest challenge is financing. We hear a lot about money out there from organizations like the U.S. Department of Energy, but we find that most often the administrative requirements around these funds sort of inhibit organizations that really need it from participating because they typically have the fewest resources to pursue it. And so we've been working really hard with the White House and with the Capitol in California to try to explain the nature of CSU and how it does business and that we can be really effective users of this funding, but that we're really limited in resources. And so when there's a rigorous process for administratively for funding, it really impedes our ability to successfully implement these projects, even though we can take the dollar extremely far. We have projects on the ready and we have staff that can do them. So I think there's also challenges that are, you know, within our control. And those really center around commitments from leadership. I think for the most part, campuses are pretty vocal about prioritizing sustainability. And I think they are genuine about that. But when the rubber meets the road, sustainability, unfortunately, is still seen as non-mission critical or non-critical ops, which means that when cuts have to be made, sometimes it's them. And our responsibility there is to present leadership with the business case to actually give them the tools they need to understand the holistic monetary impact of not doing this stuff. And I think that's a space that we haven't been terrific about. And someone said something at this event that I loved, Marianella from the University of Texas at Rio Grande Valley. She said, sustainability isn't your idea. It's the solution. You have to make the case for its implementation. And so my people hear me say a lot, you can't, operate in a sustainable space from the world high ground. Your rightness isn't a factor. You have to be able to give people the tools to actually support your program financially. And that's something that we struggle with. And one of my staff says, it's something that we are building the plane while flying it and writing the manual. And I love that phrase. She hears me say it all the time. And I always try to give her credit because I thought it was brilliant. But yes, it's a real challenge. So leadership and funding, those are our big tasks to tackle. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Can you speak more to the
4: curriculum sustainability goals? What does that mean? Sure. So the CSU has obviously a variety of degree programs. So that can be both a degree focused on sustainability, an environmental science degree that's, that's got to focus on sustainable tenants, or it can be adding sustainability to something like a business course or an arts section, which that's some of the most fun stuff to hear how these faculty incorporate sustainability into their regular work. So there's a lot, and it's a challenge. And so trying to expand the course catalog so that there's an element of sustainability included in pretty much everything is ultimately the goal. And it's relevant to everything in some way.
1: Absolutely. So you're the largest university also in the state of California, which has very aggressive mandates in place. Does this make your job easier or harder?
4: I think it probably does both. So the mandates are, they give the department teeth to try to implement these strategies. They also give us the 800-pound gorilla in the room to point to. <laughs> so when my staff and I, or our staff and I are in front of leadership and campuses, and we're making these broad statements about how you will build net zero buildings and you will make you know these social inroads with clubs and programs on the campus that we're not just saying it For our own, to hear ourselves talk, it's representative of legislation and regulation. So that part makes it easier. And I think the truth is, though, legislation and regulation is inherently messy. So we have regulation that competes with each other. Unfunded mandates are a four-letter word in California. That's just the way it is. And so we don't want to have to say, just make it happen to campuses. And we certainly don't ever want to put the burden on the backs of the students that we serve. So the legislation makes it, it forces innovation, but it also means we have to strategize around funding in such a way that we can meet these goals.
1: Yeah. So let's dive into funding. How does it work for the public
4: institution? So the public institution is basically we get allocation from the state every year. That allocation has declined significantly over time. We do have a five-year compact with the governor of California that's tied to enrollment. So that's a really principal focus for the campuses right now. Then the chancellor's office distributes that money to the campuses, to the campus presidents, and they have to make the allocation decisions on both the academic and operational side. So that's kind of how the funding works. Got it. What's been the biggest surprise as you've worked through all of these issues? So I would say hands down the commitment of the staff to this work. They're not in it for the money. Or the glory, we're a public institution, so this is not the place to go for that. But we all believe in the CSU and its mission so completely, and to such a degree, no pun intended, that they deal with this sort of constant barrage of changing conditions, um, climate anxiety, which is very real, competing priorities, lack of funding, you name it. And we have to talk each other off the ledge frequently. This work can be very sort of emotionally, mentally, psychologically draining, and so when we work really hard and, and we either don't reach a target or a target, you know, gets pulled back, it can be painful. So everybody just works really hard all the time and they keep pressing forward, looking for alternatives and innovating and trying to keep student success at the forefront of our goals. It's, I just can't express how impressive it is, the level of commitment.
1: From the faculty, do you also see a lot of cooperation coming from the students and from the higher-ups at the university?
4: Yeah. So the staff I'm talking about are obviously, you know, my staff. I think faculty, they're deeply engaged too, generally from sort of a research and higher level perspective focused on whatever their mandate of instruction is. The students are the ones that force this to happen. Uh, Students are now looking at sustainability metrics as part of their decision Tree for deciding where to go to school. And so it's now become part of the business case to make for leadership when they're deciding what programs have to get sacrificed in hard times or what programs to support during fat times. So it has become a really important element of generally doing business as the CSU.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. And it's only going to expand from there. What about some wins? What's been a
4: recent win you want to celebrate? So there's been so many. We're so great at everything we do. So I think. We've managed to keep our energy usage level over the last 10 years. And when I say level, I mean we haven't increased our emissions despite adding millions of square feet to our physical asset space. We have solar installations across the state. Most of the campuses have something that they're either working on or have already installed. We've saved millions of dollars in energy costs through deep efficiency projects. We have new and emerging sustainability degree programs, which we spoke about briefly. And then on the social side, every campus has student life centers focused on supporting LGBTQ plus students, BIPOC students, disabled students, and then things like campus closets or food pantries to support housing and food insecure students. So a whole host of basic needs programs across the CSU. So we do this really, really well. And then I think one of the big things that sort of is a recent but ongoing development is that we have, the CSUs have occupied Five of the top 10 top performers within AC Stars. So, five of the top 10 are CSUs. And we're really proud of that. It's just a tremendous amount of work. And I think, unless someone's gone through the reporting process, it takes at minimum a year to put together a report. But for most campuses, it's really like a three year cycle because it's just so intensive. So, yeah, so we've had a lot of really strategic wins in this area. And we're very good at what we do. Yeah, well,
1: we celebrate you right alongside you. And last question, thinking about the state of clean energy today, what do you see as the biggest challenges and the biggest opportunities?
4: So I don't
1: want to say funding because we all know. I know everyone, that's the big, it's on the forefront of everyone's minds.
4: And it's the truth. It is the biggest issue. So I would say at the risk of getting a little political, the fact that we are still trying to convince leadership at the highest levels that this is a real and legitimate problem and that it does affect their constituents, whether they choose to acknowledge it or not, That's the stuff that keeps me up at night. I see that as a real hurdle and one that's very difficult to get over. But I also think that the United States is so thinking sort of at the national level, because we're such a large contributor of emissions, but we also have one of the most diverse demographics as it relates to our people here. All of our impacts, anything we do in this space is huge. And I think there's an opportunity to demonstrate exceptionalism. And I think there's a responsibility to demonstrate leadership, specifically for the U.S. And we're privileged to occupy that space, but with great power comes great responsibility. So I think those little changes that have those big impacts are contagious and they generate momentum outside of the U.S. and inside the U.S. So the climate crisis is something that affects all of us, albeit not equally. But I think it's something that the global community could really collaborate behind and come together around.
1: Yeah. Well, Lindsay, you're setting an example for higher ed. We're so thankful you sat down with us and we're so excited to see you continue to lead in this space and excited to see what you do in the coming years. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Many thanks to Wolfgang Bauer, Jason Mironde, and Lindsay Rowell. We look forward to watching your journeys as you move forward. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for tuning into this podcast and being part of Smart Energy Decisions. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can become part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, like the Net Zero Forum, click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're honored to have the opportunity to share conversations with leaders of the energy transition in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions.
1: Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users to keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.